Our guest today is Adam Brimo, the founder and CEO of Open Learning. Adam's a really humble guy, but his business is shaking up education. So we had a great conversation about how to make education more compelling. We also talk about how to run an international business almost from the beginning. And Adam also shared how his role has changed as the business has grown. Really interesting conversation. I loved it. I know you will. Let's get into it. Hi, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of the Make It Happen show. I'm Tim Morris, joined here by Adam Brimo. Adam, welcome. Thank you. Nice to be here. You're the founder and CEO of OpenLearning.com. And we were chatting just before, and you told me that 60% of universities in Malaysia are using your platform. So specifically, how did you make that happen? Well, it wasn't what I expected when we first started. So um, we, we started the company in Sydney, Australia, about six years ago. So yeah. right, right here. Nice. Actually, not not far, <laughs> not far from this office. And um, very quickly, we allowed anyone around the world to actually uh, build a course on the platform. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had a number of lecturers from universities in Malaysia start using the platform. And is there is there any particular reason why? Have you managed to put your finger on it? They just they just got onto it. Well, it's interesting. So about uh, six years ago, yeah. the whole massive open online course uh, revolution started. And you had quite a few of these platforms popping up around the world, some mm-hmm. in the US, some in Europe, some in Australia. Um, but all of them had very uh, strong restrictions on the type of university that could use it. Mm. You had to be a top 200. You had to be research oriented. But we're actually open learning. So mm. we allow anyone around the world to build a course. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the universities in Malaysia aren't on the same uh, rankings mm. as many of the other universities. So they wanted to try out the MOOC concept. And from our perspective, it's all about the quality of the learning experience. Yeah. So if you can build a quality course, we're happy to support you. Mm-hmm. So it was from there that a lecturer built the first large open online course in Malaysia. Yep. Uh, ran it for thousands of people around the world, actually on entrepreneurship. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, and uh, students from the US and Australia joined. Uh, and from there, um, you know, it, it was quite a success. They invited me over uh, to come talk to the university, and that's sort of what kicked it all off. Uh, Oh, wow. four, year, four and a half years ago. That's really interesting. Yeah. So it's um, a great opportunity came from not being too discerning about who got on there in the first place. We're discerning about quality, but not on <laughs> the, um, you know, not in the sort of formal uh, you know, rankings of things. Yeah, well, I suppose in education, that's what matters. Yeah. Quality of education. Well, that's what we would hope. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that, <that's> but <laughs> it's not how it is. Well, you're always, you're always relying on brands that you know, mm-hmm. right? So in, in education, um, the brand of the university matters a lot. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, that's a good thing. Uh, to some extent, you put a lot of work into building up your brand. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's hard for teaching or learning and teaching focused universities to get to the same stature as a University of Melbourne, a UNSW or Stanford or Harvard, mm-hmm. just because they haven't been around as long. Mm-hmm. So for us, it's if we can support people to build a quality learning experience, then that's what matters on the platform. Fantastic. And so uh, what, what are the core components of open learning that allow someone to build a quality learning experience? Yeah, so this is the thing, right? So what is quality in education? And that's, that's mm. a hard thing for mm. people to put their finger on. Because in some ways, you don't really know if the course you went through worked until many years after the fact, right? <laughs> like you're in the workforce, you've got the job you wanted, and you can actually do the job. And you probably think, OK, I did, I did something right during, during my university. <laughs> I absorbed some of the relevant information. Yeah. Um, but it's hard to know, you know, going back five or 10 years, you know, when you first went into university, whether you chose the right subject, whether you chose the right course. So for us, what we look at is, um, what we look at the research into um, how to design a quality learning experience that mm. delivers the outcomes you want. So if your outcomes are critical thinking, entrepreneurial thinking, you know, um, even engineering and science, the whole set of outcomes that you're trying to achieve, mm-hmm. we look at what's the best learning experience you can design to do that. Mm. And for us, 
that comes down to a field called social constructivism, mm -hmm. which is all about people constructing their own knowledge. Mm. So rather than someone telling you, hey, this is the answer, they give you the problem first, and you've got to work out the solution yourself. And maybe everyone in the course actually comes up with a different solution, yeah. but they've all actually achieved the same outcome. Gotcha, because it's, the, it's them going through the process of thinking about the problem, pulling together the information, and forming their own worldview on it. Exactly. Yeah. So instead of just sitting there and watching someone talk for an hour, mm -hmm. you're actually doing stuff. Mm. Um, and it's that sort of learning by doing, project-based learning, in sort of a team and in a collaborative environment, that open learning is really designed for. Yeah, well, we could add an element of that to this podcast by telling everyone to put in the comments, like, tear down the podcast, <laughs> put in your thoughts, put in your suggestions. Yeah, yeah but we, we won't we, do that. We invite everyone into the podcast. <laughs> yeah, get involved. We all, we all have a discussion, yeah. <laughs> awesome. So um, I'd love to go just touch back on the, the journey a little bit, just so everyone can, can hear the stages that you've gone through. So mm -hmm. it's very interesting that you, so you launched here in Sydney, and then you had pretty quickly some international um, at least exposure and maybe success, or maybe that came a little bit later on. But were you still operating in Sydney or what's your balance between Australia and international now? What's kind of the process through there? Yeah, so um, uh, when we first started the company six years ago, so the company was founded by uh, myself and a couple other people. Mm -hmm. um, one of them, uh, David Cullion, is my CTO. Mm -hmm. uh, and we actually met at university, uh, at UNSW. So um, I studied software engineering and arts. He did uh, computer science. And we actually programmed robots to play soccer and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> uh, but the cool thing was, um, at UNSW, we were actually able to tutor subjects uh, that we had done well in. Mm -hmm. So because of that, we all gained teaching experience uh, in our undergraduate years. Um, and David was, went off and did a PhD in online education that he ended up putting on hold to start open learning mm. uh, with me. So um, that was sort of, the, we first got going, you know, thinking about how can we improve the quality of education. Mm -hmm initially looking at our own universities in Australia. Mm -hmm. um, and the company has always been based in Sydney. Um, and I've always spent a lot of time here. Um, but about sort of four years ago, when we started um, getting more uh, users from overseas. Um, and we actually had more and more universities in Malaysia start using the platform. We established an office uh, in KL about three and a half years ago. Mm -hmm. um, so now we work with about 25% of the universities in Australia. Mm -hmm. uh, as you said, about 60% in Malaysia. Um, but also we have um, about 40% of our users outside those two countries around the world. Where, uh, where are they? What are the main countries? So actually the, the top five are Malaysia, Australia, US, India, yeah. and the UK. Yeah, wow, um, what a spread. Yeah, so you wouldn't, I mean, you never, this is the thing, you never know when you, when you enable people to take a course or build a course where they're actually going to come from. Mm. Um, so for us, it's quite interesting because the whole idea is anyone's able to learn and teach. Yeah. Are all the courses in English or do you have different languages? I suppose it's up to the university or whoever's making the course. Yeah, so it's up to whoever's building the course. Um, most of them would be in English. Mm -hmm. um, in Malaysia, we have quite a few courses in Bahasa Melayu, mm -hmm. um, some in Chinese, some in Arabic. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, there's a whole, whole wide range on the platform. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so today, um, the company has about uh, 33 staff in Sydney, about 35 in Malaysia, and then about half a dozen or so scattered around the world. Yeah, wow. Um, so we're kind of like an even split almost uh, between the two places. And, and I actually split my time between uh, Malaysia, Australia, and a bit in Singapore as well. What's it like uh, having a business with, with two decent-sized camps in two different countries? Like, how's the management experience with that? What have you learned along the way? Yeah, so that's actually one of the more interesting challenges that we've had to deal with. Um, like when you're sort of a multinational company, everyone thinks you must be really big, right? <laughs> but we're here a multinational company with you know, uh, less than 100 staff. Um, that presents its own challenges. Um, so when we first started, I think we hired our first person um, overseas. Uh, very early on, a customer success person, and then mm -hmm. the first person in Malaysia, um, <clears throat> probably uh, when we only had 12 people 
mm. uh, in the company. Mm -hmm. And that meant we had to try and make sure that everyone still felt like they were part of the same company, that we had a consistent set of values, a consistent culture, um, and that we had the same hiring standards no matter where we went. Yeah. Um, and that was a learning process for us. It was very hard for the first couple of years. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, but now it's quite exciting because we actually have teams that are across both countries or multiple countries. Uh, people regularly work together to solve problems. We have the same hiring standards in both countries. Mm. So everyone is, is part of sort of one organization with one set of values and gets to know everyone. Yeah. Um, so that's helped alleviate the distance a bit. But it's, it's an interesting challenge that you yeah. don't think about. Well, uh, I've got two uh, questions on this topic. So first of all, like what are some of the actual tools that you use to um, help that collaboration and make everyone feel together? Uh, and the second one is who would you like to hire first in a new country? Like is there a type of person that you look for? Yeah, so the, the type of tools we use. Uh, actually, so one of them is open learning. Uh, <laughs> Coincidence? <laughs> I think not. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you should use your own product. <laughs> so um, the, what we actually do is we have uh, what we call our, um, like our team courses. So we yep. have a vision and values course. And the vision and values course actually goes through um, all the values of the company, our mission, our vision, our goals, but also has a lot of activities so people get to know each other as a person. Mm. Um, and it, we share like where we want to be in five years time, where we've been in the past, like sort of our history. So that brings everyone together when they first join the company. Um, on a regular basis, um, we use uh, a whole range of tools like Slack and Asana, mm -hmm. um, Jira for the engineering uh, yep. teams. Uh, we use wikis and all this kind of stuff. So there's a whole range of tools that, that we use for collaboration. Mm. Um, and the structure of the company is such that some teams are country focused and other teams are global in nature. Mm -hmm. And the global teams uh, contain people from all the countries we operate, mm -hmm. um, whereas the country teams are focused on the specific country. Gotcha. Gotcha. So if we're going into a new country, um, it depends on what our approach is, but we're usually looking at partnerships managers. Mm -hmm. um, and the partnerships person is really doing the groundwork um, to work out, okay, who in this country can we work with in mm -hmm. terms of institutions, corporate, government, uh, sort of understanding the, the lay of the land. Um, now that can take some time in education, so usually what we're doing is we're testing the market before we go in mm -hmm. um, by seeing how many students are currently taking courses on open learning, who our organic uh, users and institutions are. Yeah. So we're going through that, that whole process. Yeah, well, that's a good, uh, real, really good indicator of what the potential reception is going to be like. And also yeah. if you have students from a country already using the platform, that, that really bolsters the conversation with any institutions. And in terms of, uh, so you're looking for a partnership person that can go in and really see the lay of the land. Uh, what type of people are you looking for that can really be a vanguard in a new area? Is it a specific type that you look for or is it just you take the best partnership person you can find? Um, so yeah, so that's an interesting one because when you look at partnerships, you can look at sort of your more traditional sales uh, person or you can look at someone who's more solution driven. Um, interesting for us in the education sector um, because what we're offering is a platform that enables institutions to design courses in a new and different way. Mm -hmm. And to understand that well requires a good understanding of education mm -hmm. and the challenges occurring in the tertiary education sector around the world. Mm -hmm. um, so we need someone with experience in the education sector. Uh, and interestingly, those that have a background in education itself, uh, even as a teacher um, or working at a university, um, can actually be a fantastic partnerships person. Mm -hmm. Someone who's actually worked in an education provider. Mm -hmm. um, it's sort of been on the other side of the table. They know all the challenges yeah. and how to navigate through They know it. all the challenges, <laughs> and now we're giving them a solution that <laughs> hopefully solves some of them. So, so thinking, um, so yeah, education, while, while there has been quite a lot of disruption in education over the last, let's call it 10 years, right? So when I, when I, I worked in education, I always have, when I was helping universities 
first start to understand the concept of online education, or at least digitizing some of what they did. That was about 12 years ago, right? And there's been quite a lot of progress in that period, but we are nowhere near, in my opinion, like full digitization, modernization, just more compelling education experiences. Like why is it taking so long and why is it so far to go? Yeah, so six years ago when I started, I, I saw there was a gap in the market mm. and that, that gap is still there. <laughs> so <laughs> just chipped away. Yeah, it? we're chipping away slowly. Um, and I think it's interesting. So when we first started the company, one of the, in, in, in the simplest way possible, the way we saw education as it was being delivered then and still today is that people are uploading videos online. People are watching them and they're doing quizzes. Mm -hmm. Now, surely that is not the learning mm -hmm. experience that you go to university for. Yeah. And surely it's not what you would pay for as well. Mm -hmm. But by and large, that is still the dominant mm -hmm. style of you know, learning delivery yeah. uh, on, in online education around the world, yeah. which shocks us. And so that's just been enhanced by some of the digital stuff. Yeah, so yeah. Most of, a lot of the things that have happened recently have focused on production values mm -hmm. rather than the actual design of the learning experience. Mm. So what we've focused on is not so much the production values, because that's, you know, that's easy to do. You can get you know, a great uh, you know, production team and you have... Yep. Fantastic video. It's also not necessarily that important. Like it's important. Yeah. You can't be below a certain standard, but it's more about how engaging is the whole experience. And then people will put up with some pretty pretty average content if the experience is really good. Exactly. And and it's that experience that we're helping people design. Mm. So actually, out of our in our company at the moment, about half of the staff are in an area we call learning services. Mm -hmm. And learning services are learning designers mm -hmm. who actually sit down with the academics and subject matter experts and redesign their content and materials mm. so it is more engaging. Now what that means is taking um, a video and a quiz and turning it into a project-based learning experience mm -hmm. that involves five other people um, in, the, in the course. Mm -hmm. So that kind of thing is more creative thinking, mm -hmm. uh, understanding the subject enough so you can work with the academic to try mm -hmm. and pull out what they're trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. um, so. That, that piece is really what we are using the platform uh, to deliver, mm. um, both the learning design experience, the, the learning design experience and the uh, platform itself, mm -hmm. but then also helping the institutions reach new markets. So putting all of that together, that sort of fills a gap at the moment, which is that institutions and students need more flexible forms of education mm -hmm. that are delivering on the outcomes they need to get a job in the future. Mm. Um, so that gap still exists. Um, I think a lot of universities are starting to see that and they're trying to move in that direction, mm -hmm. but it takes a long time, mm. uh, as, as you've experienced and <laughs> as I still experience every day. <laughs> Very long time. Yeah. Probably quite like being outside of the accredited education landscape now at the Entourage. Yeah, <laughs> um, that has its benefits. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I, I know like every topic's different and the outcomes that you're trying to get to are different, uh, but are there key principles in your mind for making education more sticky or more compelling? So you, you touched on social, you mentioned project-based. Are there a couple, if I was to be teaching someone something, what are the key things I should be trying to hit? Yeah, so um, one of the first things we recommend that you do when you're building a course mm. is focus on building up the community. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, community building can happen in many ways. Um, if you're doing a face-to-face -face workshop, for example, um, everyone will get in the room and you'll probably start off by introducing yourselves, mm -hmm. you know, getting to know each other, they mm -hmm. normally call it. 
Now, when you're online, you have to do that even more so mm. because what you have face to face is spontaneous interaction. Because mm -hmm. we're sitting next to each other, we're going to talk. <laughs> have to. Like, yeah, we have no choice, right? <laughs> it would be very awkward if we if we didn't, especially in this setup. Right? Yeah, right now. It's <laughs> right <just> now. <laughs> yeah. Um, but when you're online, it's a lot harder because yeah. you you can't see anyone. Mm. Um, so you have to try and find a way to create that. And mm. the way we do that is by designing activities which are focused on rapport building. Mm -hmm. So um, it, people introducing themselves, sharing about their history, why they're interested in the topic. And before they've even done any sort of learning activities, they've already gotten to know each other in the course. Mm -hmm. Now what that means is even if people get stuck or the course is not designed as well, the community itself will actually lift up the experience. Mm -hmm. And that actually happens a lot at universities. Um, you know, when you have a good community, the students will sometimes teach themselves if the teacher isn't doing that for them. Mm. Um, like I know from my university days, some of our <laughs> most interesting courses were ones where the teacher was sometimes absent and we, we were trying to solve the problems on our own. Build, build robots, <laughs> was it playing soccer? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so build up the community. Uh, and then what about, the, what about the structure of the content or the challenges that you're giving them? What's, what are the key principles there? Yeah, so we focus on um, a lot more open-ended uh, types of activities. Mm -hmm. So very few videos, for example. Mm -hmm. um, videos, in our view, should be used as stimulus material or, or, or um, sort of short how-tos, mm -hmm. um, but focusing on the stimulus component for mm -hmm. video. And then the actual learning happens in the activities. Mm -hmm. And those activities, uh, people are doing in the community rather than submitting to a teacher. Mm -hmm. So a very simple example uh, of something that, that we've changed is that if you think of the language in education, the language that we use in, in traditional education is actually quite authoritative. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we have things like submitting to a teacher, mm. you know, um, yeah. getting marked, you know, assessed and graded. Like these aren't friendly concepts like anywhere else in society, <laughs> but in, in education, they're still quite prevalent. Yeah. So for us, it's about instead of submitting, you're sharing with the community. Mm -hmm. So actually changing the language of, of uh, the education experience contributes yep. to um, a, a better uh, environment for the students. Yeah. And then uh, on the peer side, does peer feedback feedback play an important role or how do you tap into that? It definitely does. Um, so when a student does an activity and they share it with the community, um, they're inviting feedback. Mm -hmm. um, so the feedback is definitely coming from the peers, sometimes from a facilitator, but more and more we, we try and encourage peer feedback. Mm -hmm. Now that has an added benefit, which is that if you're relying on the community to provide feedback, then you don't need as many uh, facilitators or teachers in the course. Because mm -hmm. most, um, most courses are, are actually more like tutoring sessions. Mm -hmm. You have one teacher and 20 students, and they're trying to go around and you help everyone. Yep. Yep. Um, whereas in this environment, the teacher is actually more of a community manager, mm -hmm. like you'd have on social media. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's, it's changing that, that whole set of dynamics around that. Awesome. So we've got, uh, so I'm just trying to build up kind of like my pillars for, for yeah, delivering yeah. better you education. Want, we, we can design the course together <laughs> if you want. Is that what, I, see. I, think it's, I think it's really uh, valuable because it all, it's such an important part for every business to be teaching their customers, to be teaching their employees, to just be educating people on like how you do business and, and sort of what you want to get out of all of them. And so um, making sure that you are, uh, it's social learning, making sure that you are open-ended, problem-based learning, there's peer review and peer feedback. Is there, are there any other really key ones that you'd add into the mix or that, that's basically the key foundations? I mean, that's that's the key thing from a learning design perspective. Mm -hmm. um, we uh, it, feels, it fits into many different categories, but mm -hmm. one is probably outcome-based education. Mm -hmm. So um, the other interesting thing is that everything that happens inside the course would be mapped to the learning outcomes you're trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. Now, this sort of alignment is um, supposed to occur 
in any course that is run mm. at a university or in uh, vocational. I like the supposed to bit you injected in the <laughs> Yeah, <door>. you never <laughs> know. <laughs> from, from what we've seen, it's not always the case, um, but, but it definitely should be. Yeah. So uh, either it's written down or it's in the lecturer's mind when mm. they're teaching something. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the goal is that every one of these activities is actually mapped to one of those outcomes. Mm -hmm. And when it's mapped to those outcomes, uh, we can do something special with it in open learning, mm -hmm. which is that we can generate a portfolio automatically of all the work and all the skills you've attained in that course mm. uh, aligned to the outcomes that you are trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. So that sort of automatic portfolio is something that students are now taking to employers. Um, and it's being able to show employers what skills you have rather than what certificates, you yeah. know, what, what brand you, university you went to. Well, from an employer point of view, that's much more useful. Yeah, that's to what, determine that's someone's capability. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's what it's <laughs> Students are probably hoping, hoping for yeah. as well. Yeah. Okay, so let's um let's change tack a little bit slightly and talk about um you know the business side of things. And so, how has your experience running the business changed as it's been growing? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, when I first started, um, there was only like a few of us in a room. Yeah. Um, I spent uh, a lot of my early time actually um, as an engineer. Okay. So um, I helped out the engineering team. Um, we built a lot of features in the platform together. Um, I was pretty much the only person doing customer support as well. So I was also <laughs> doing that. And I was one of the, the only person doing sales as well. So, <laughs> Big role. Yeah. So you know, when, when you're doing that, you have to understand the problem that you know, you're solving, communicate that well. Um, also be able to support the university or the client, mm. um, and then also develop some things when, when they need them. So that was the very early stages. Mm. Um, and uh, as we grew, uh, I realized that, um, you know, I'm probably, uh, I'm definitely shouldn't be doing all of those things for sure. And it's probably slowing people down if I'm trying to do them. Yeah. Um, so you, you move into different roles over time. Um, probably the, the primary role I then had was really around business development. Mm -hmm. And that was in, in all forms. So um, to universities, uh, corporate, government, um, also uh, pitching for investment mm -hmm. uh, continuously mm -hmm. throughout sort of the whole six years. So really business development, investor relations, fundraising, um, these became the, the key things that I would do. Um, but that was quite hard because for the first sort of few years, and even until a couple of years ago, we didn't have like a well-formed uh, management team. Mm. Um, so we were growing the team, but we didn't have you know, people leading all of the areas. This, so, this is a really interesting area for growing business. Like, like yeah. um, how many people did you get up to until you said, right, no, we really need a little bit of a management structure in here? Um, I think... I was probably at about uh, sort of in the 30s, like 35 people. Wow, you held on, you held on for a long time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, we had we had managers for some of the teams. Yeah. Uh, but not by and large, we did not. Yeah. Uh, it actually was only in the past, uh, only about a year and a half ago, um, that we actually restructured the company, put in place a proper, mm. what I'd say, uh, structure across all the different teams, uh, and then built out the management team mm. um, until sort of mid last year, where. We hired a managing director for Australia mm -hmm. um, who actually takes over the, the sales services and marketing component mm -hmm. for the Australian market. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so now we have a, a, a fairly well-formed structure and we're at about sort of, I think, 68 people or so. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it, it was challenging first in the beginning yeah. to, to try and manage things without that. <laughs> uh, also then once we started putting in place, trying to find the right people yeah. um, for each of those teams because you know, in the early days when you start a company, a lot of things are based off of your relationships. Um, and either the relationships you may have already had or ones you've developed through the process of starting the company and talking to clients. Mm -hmm. So handing those over to somebody else 
um, in any area, whether it's uh, support or sales or partnerships or whatever, mm. uh, that's that's a challenge. So you got to find the right people to do that. Yeah, and it, well, and the challenge for you must be letting go of this area that you know so well. So you let go of the programming side, and you have to let go of the sales side, and you have to let go of the country side. Yeah. yeah. So how, how do you go through that letting go process? Uh, it's quite happy. Quite happy. <laughs> You're happy with it. You get to the end. You're like, I'm done with this bit. All right, I'm on to something else. I mean, it, it's it's about it's sort of you know what what's what what your time is best spent doing, right? Yep. So that's that's how I look at it. Um, if we can find like a really good person who can lead that that side, then I'm so happy because it means um, I can trust that person, mm -hmm. and I don't have to put my effort into that area anymore. Yep. Um, now that that's been very good in some areas and other areas you know it's taken us time to find the right person and it's been you know hard and, and it's been you know to, to to do that and and in those cases when you uh when you don't have the confidence and the trust in the person mm -hmm. that's when it becomes hard to let go because mm. you know that okay, you can okay. probably do it better but if you know the person can do it well um which is which is what, what we have now then it's it's really good because um now i can actually invest my time in uh, the higher level of business development, uh, entering new markets, mm. looking at things like, you know ways we optimize across the entire company from a strategy perspective. Mm. Um, so that, that's something I actually started doing uh, early last year, where we uh, mapped out our strategy in much more detail mm -hmm. at the beginning of the year, and we've done that again this year. So you're being freed up to look further forwards, actually make a strategy. <laughs> um, how far out does your strategy stretch? Um, well, you know. You, you try and think about it for three years, but you yeah. change it, you know, revise it every quarter or two quarters. Well, as long as you've got some sort of plan. Yeah. Um, actually, I just want to, want to pull out one little bit of something you said there. Was I think a really good rule of thumb of, of whether you've hired the right person, from what you were saying before, is whether you have that trust that they've got it covered. Right? And maybe that's what, when you're trying to hire someone really important to lead up a team or lead up a function, uh, like try and say, do I trust this person? Do I think I'm going to trust this person? Mm -hmm. If you do, great. If yeah. you don't, uh-oh, you've got to, got to change. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, I think that that is the key thing, mm. and, and it's hard, right? Like, first, it's hard to the hire the right person to t test them out and to make the change. Yeah, but you have to if you yeah. want the business to move ahead. Yeah. So you've already touched on a couple of things that you're now looking at. So you, so you're at the CEO level. You have a good organizational structure underneath you. You're mainly looking at new markets, strategic direction. What are the other key focuses that um, take up your time now? Um, still business development, but yep. more uh, working with the teams in each country. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I'm sort of providing more feedback to them um, and, and helping them uh, make the right decisions. Yep. Um, I spend a lot of time sort of on the, uh, on the fundraising side as well. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, so since we started, uh, we've raised a few rounds of funding. Mm -hmm. uh, our latest round was a, a Series A about um, sort of 12 to 18 months ago. Mm -hmm. um, so in total, the company's raised about uh, $13.5 million dollars uh, in that time, uh, and now we're we're starting to look at sort of a Series B round. Gotcha. Um, so that that process requires quite a bit, um, yeah. And it requires me to be out there talking to the investors mm. and actually explaining, okay, this is our view of the world and and why our view of the world makes sense. Yeah. Um, so that that's a key part. Um, also looking at some of the more strategic uh, deals that we work on, mm -hmm. um, and sort of the the trends occurring in the markets that we operate in and how we can support and influence those. Yeah, very interesting. Coming from, a, coming from an engineering background, did you ever think that you would be so much on the business development and sales and relationship side? Um, well, so the funny thing is, uh, so when I first started, well, not when I first started, um, so when I was growing up, I was always a bit of an entrepreneur. Yeah. Uh, so when I was younger, I had like, you know, a lemonade stand and so this <laughs> kind of stuff. So awesome. I, yeah, so I, I grew up in the US, so um, 
there you open a lemonade stand and you don't need a permit, I guess, so you <laughs> buy lemonade on the side do, of the street. Do you need a permit here in Australia? I'm probably. Sure, probably, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, so I was quite entre entrepreneurial when I was younger and um, even at university, I, I had a freelance uh, web design business. Mm. Um, I'd worked um, as, an, as an engineer and analyst at a, a couple of banks, uh, investment banks here, uh, before I started the company. Mm. And I'd actually tried to start another company before I started um, open learning. Mm. And that wasn't successful. So I think I, I learned a lot from that process. And yeah. um, I, I quite enjoy the engineering side. Yeah. But I look at it at sort of what's the impact that you can make. Yeah. And if I can make a bigger impact in the other areas, mm. then I'll definitely go for yeah. those. Yeah, which is obviously a, you've decided you can make more impact. Yeah. And so just getting back to the next potential capital raise that you're doing, so maybe a Series B, and you're probably in discussions around that now. Do you foresee further rounds after that? What's your thinking around raising capital and how many rounds a company might want to go through? So it really depends on the company and the mm. industry that you're in. Um, for like for tech companies, um, there's a lot of upfront investment required mm -hmm. to build a product that is globally competitive. Mm. And that's really what you're going for. Mm -hmm. um, so for us, we're looking at all the learning platforms mm. around the world, um, all the big online education providers like Coursera, FutureLearn, Udacity. Mm. Um, and these are companies that we actually have to compete with. Mm. Um, so for us, um, we have to make sure we're investing enough in, mm -hmm. in the product itself mm -hmm. uh, and also around the whole suite of solutions that we offer. Mm -hmm. um, so that requires a lot of investment. Mm -hmm. uh, and from our perspective, we see a big opportunity in Australia and Southeast Asia, and we want to invest to get that. Mm. Um, so I expect that we'll We'll keep raising funding as long as we see opportunities to invest it. Mm. Whereas if we don't, then we, yeah, we would just pull back and you know, uh, sort of become a profitable business. Yeah. But instead, we actually want to open up new markets. Yeah. So at the moment, we operate in Australia, Malaysia, and Singapore. Um, we're looking at sort of Indonesia and the Philippines. Um, and those require their own entry strategy mm. uh, and their own funding uh, mm -hmm. to do that. Yeah, so it's, it's funding for not just the technology development to remain competitive, but also launching new countries can be very, very expensive as well. Yeah, and in, um, in tertiary education, uh, there's a long lead time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we might actually do a partnership with a university and it could take a year, a year and a half to get that partnership together. Mm. And then you, it would take you maybe another six to 12 months to implement. So um, because of that, that timeline, <laughs> Entering new markets is actually quite a bit of work. Yeah. So we, we try and shorten that as much as possible, and we have many ways of doing that. Mm. But um, it's it's you know we have to fund that uh, until that occurs. Yeah. Well, you must be incredibly well placed to do that because you are you know from the Southeast Asian region. You've obviously had a lot of success in Malaysia already. Yeah. I think I think you're probably as well placed as any of the other competitors out there to leverage Southeast Asia. That's really good. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. So um, yeah, and, and actually carving out Australia and Southeast Asia was what we noticed was something that we could actually do. Mm. Um, if you look at the US players and, and European players, they're focused on their, dom on their domestic mm -hmm. uh, or regional markets. And so just like us, you know, we're Australian, we're focusing on the Australian market and Southeast Asia. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there aren't uh, too many uh, competitors sort of at that level, uh, possibly because it takes so long to get there. I think it's, <laughs> it's a bit of endurance uh, <laughs> required. So when, when we first started, there were a number of these other massive open online course platforms um, across the region and mm. uh, in Europe and the US, and a lot of them have actually fallen away. Mm. Um, so, so you're winning. You're winning the the game of strategy and the game of attrition. <laughs> uh, whatever it takes, <laughs> you, you take what you can get. <laughs> should be a good motto there. All right, we're um, we're uh, getting close to wrapping up. I've got a couple of questions here okay. that I haven't seen and you haven't seen either. And the challenge is we try and get through these in one minute. 
Okay. okay. I, we okay. barely ever, ever actually make it, but let's give it a one shot. One minute per question? Or one no, no, one minute for... Uh, I've got five here. Okay. So it's rapid fire. Okay. All right. we so we're going to try and make this happen in one minute. You ready to go? Yeah. Excellent. All right. What's your favourite part about being an entrepreneur? You never know what happens when you wake up. Awesome. What is your least favourite part about being an entrepreneur? You also don't know what's going to happen <laughs> <laughs> when you get up in the morning. That set itself <laughs> up perfectly. Okay, great. Uh, <laughs> Does pineapple belong on pizza? Oh, to be honest, for me personally, no. Oh, hell yes, it does. Absolutely. But for you, no. Okay. Yeah, so <laughs> you, you can have the pineapple. I'll have the rest of the pizza. It does not seem like a fair deal to me. <laughs> All right. What's the biggest misconception people have about online learning? That it's boring. Okay. And you guys are making it interesting. Yes. With open learning, it's interesting, but many others are still boring, unfortunately. <laughs> it's a good up as well. Okay. And finally, if a business owner wants to shake up a traditional industry, what should they do to make that happen? Get experience in the industry first. Yep. I think you really have to understand the industry before you can actually disrupt it and shake it up. Mm, so get in there, learn yep. its foibles and its weaknesses, and then come up with concepts to really shake it up. Yeah. Excellent. Adam Brimo, thank you very much for joining us today. Good Been to be really, here. Really great thank conversation. You. Good luck with it all. Thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in to the latest episode of the Make It Happen show. If you love what you heard, hit subscribe so you'll always be the first to know when a new episode lands. Also, leave us a review. Tell us what you love and who you'd like to appear on the show next and we'll do what we can to make that happen. We speak to a successful entrepreneur every week but if you want to keep the conversation going, join our Facebook group, The Business Class. It's an active community for entrepreneurs and business owners to connect and learn from one another. You can also connect with us at The Entourage and all the usual places. That's Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. That's all from us for now. Whatever you've got on your plate this week, we hope we've given you what you need to make it happen.